with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1999. And we're not obsessing about this movie. We're just curious. The film? American Beauty. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. Oh, my gosh. I am Paul Shear. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Amy Nicholson. And this is the show where we are talking about movies that are viewed as being the greatest of all time. And we're actually doing something even a little bit more special right now because we are not just talking about general movies. We're talking about movies that won the Oscar for Best Picture. I mean, are they deservant of that Oscar. And today is a perfect example as we are getting into American Beauty. 1999 smash it. Yeah, a film that was the biggest juggernaut of juggernauts. A film that, honestly, I'm going to ask us all to do a special thing right now and get in the headspace of trying to remember why and how this movie was such a gigantic deal. Try to remember that this movie felt fresh, revolutionary, modern, and not just a ridiculous joke. Well, how about this? If you weren't alive in 1999 to have seen this movie or lived through the release of this film, we're going to contextualize that for you. Um, this might be a movie that if you watch it, you will think, oh my God, this sucks. Why are you covering this? Well, we're covering it for two reasons. One, because it was a movie that captured the zeitgeist. I think that in our conversation today, we're not just going to be ripping on this movie. We're also not going to be lifting it up. We're going to talk about like the complex issues that are at the center of this film. What works, what doesn't work, and why, even when the stuff that works feels false. I mean, there's so many things. I, I feel like this is a conversation that is a little stickier than others. It's not very clear cut how I feel about this movie. I mean, I don't like it, and I also find it really watchable. Yeah, because movies do not win Best Picture in a complete vacuum. Someday no. we're really going to have to sit down and do a thorough wrestling about Green Book. But this movie, above a lot of stuff from that era, had so much momentum behind it. I mean, this is an Oscar campaign. This is a this is a moment in the zeitgeist so much bigger than even stuff that would come after, like The Reader. This was a movie that everybody saw, everybody had an opinion on. Hey, the president, Bill Clinton, said it was one of his favorite movies ever made. Of Make course. of that what you want. And with that, Amy, let's unspool it.
The year is 1999, and the Best Picture Oscar has gotten a bit samey, right? Rewinding backward through the Best Picture winners, we've got Shakespeare in Love, Titanic, English Patient, Braveheart, Forrest Gump, Schindler's List, and Unforgiven. Seven big-budget period pieces about past eras and past people facing past problems. That In the late 90s, we think we've more or less solved. Lady actresses are equal now. War is over. Bigotry is totally uncool. And no one in our capitalist society is being locked and steered to die. If these fixes aren't totally for real, well, let's just pretend that they are and they'll be fixed soon enough and we can just act confident about it. And then comes a film that shakes everything up. American Beauty. It is not an epic period piece. It is a small, modern, bleak, mean, tragic comedy that dares to say that people alive in the late 90s, they still got problems. Take a listen to the speech. Thank you. It was almost exactly two years ago that Andrew Canava sent us a screenplay called American Beauty by Alan Ball. It dealt with sex and drugs, blackmail, homophobia, infidelity, and suburban dysfunction. And in the middle of all this was a character named Ricky Fitz, who at one point says, sometimes there's so much beauty in the world, I feel like I can't take it. And everyone in the audience knew exactly what he meant. Those are the producers Bruce Cohen and Dan Jinks accepting their Best Picture Oscar. It is their first Oscar nomination. It is a film made by several new voices, including a first-time screenwriter, Alan Ball, a first-time director, Sam Mendes, and it's even got kind of a first new way of promoting itself. This is the first time that the bookseller website Amazon.com hosts a movies website, an agreement that, according to the film's producer, DreamWorks, says that it is another example of them being on the cutting edge. American Beauty is about a man named Lester Burnham who has checked out of his job, his marriage, and even his relationship with his sad and grouchy daughter. Uh, They're played respectively by Kevin Spacey, Annette Bening, and Thor Birch. Now, the one thing that wakes up Lester is Janie's super-hot cheerleader friend, Angela, played by Mina Suvari, who claims to love having sex with older guys. The mere hope that Lester can have sex with Angela inspires him to quit his job, buy a sports car, start working out, and start smoking pot with the Burnham's new next-door neighbor, a teenager named Ricky, who sells weed under the nose of his super-strict colonel dad, that's Chris Cooper, and his completely out-of-it mom, played by Allison Janney. Do we believe that Lester will turn his life around and live happily ever after? No, because in the opening moments of the film, he tells us he is going to die within the year. And he does. This is my life. I'm 42 years old. In less than a year, I'll be dead. American Beauty was released on September 17th, 1999, and it was a massive Massive, massive success. It was the second best reviewed movie of the year. The first was being John Malkovich, and it made $356 million. American Beauty was nominated for eight Oscars. It won five of them, and yet its legacy started fading like instantly. 25 years later, it's a pretty standard opinion to go around being like, American Beauty totally sucks. What were we thinking? which is a great question. What were we thinking? I'm really curious in that question, and I think that we should set out to approach it fairly, to look closer in the lingo of the film and to try to understand why this movie hit such a chord in September 1999. 
So it was in the zeitgeist that September 1999. It was a song and a video about many of the themes in the movie. It's a song about looking under what appears to be a perfect surface, about the work that it takes to have a perfect surface, about insecurity and the desire to feel special, and about young women who feel this societal pressure to get boob jobs, just like Thora Birch's character does. This is TLC and Unpretty. I got to say, this is where my knowledge of TLC kind of ends. I'm not, I don't know this song that well. Whoa. You are about to have a beautiful moment driving in your car and listening to that song and thinking that is a gorgeous song. It's kind of when like TLC had a producer who was pushing them a little bit to do like acoustic stuff, sort of in the vein of like Lilith Fair, which was slightly, you know, hyped up around like the late nineties. And then it was really kind of the end of TLC. They break up right after this. I mean, you could imagine TLC telling you when you're about to hear this song for the first time. Oh, my God, I'm so excited for you to get to do that. In a year, we will be dead as a band. They have a lot of bangers. This might be one of my favorites. I mean, look, the foreshadowing, just like American Beauty, what will happen in a year. You know, this movie is interesting, American Beauty, because this is a film that when it came out, I was one of the devoted. I loved it. I had the soundtrack. I was into it. I loved all the actors. It felt to me like this is a prestige picture for me. Yeah. I remember seeing this movie and then going to a party with a bunch of my friends afterwards and being like, I totally cried. Did you totally cry? I totally cried. We all totally cried because it felt modern when it came out. I mean, this is a film that like it's pro weed, it's pro cheeseburgers, it's pro sex. It's pro-gay marriage. It's pro-destroying capitalism, you know, and it gets through all of that in, you know, a comedic fashion. You're like, yeah, this movie does speak to me. Yeah, I think this movie spoke to a certain age group, you know, and and I think if we look at the films of this time, there are a lot of movies like this, you know, whether it was Pleasantville or The Matrix or Office Space. You know, we were dealing with this idea of being an adult kind of sucks which is something that felt a little new, but maybe it's a little crybaby too. I think that's the reason why decades later, people look at this movie and go like, ah, oh, let's call the Wambulance over here. Like, what, what are we complaining about? Like this idea of like, you're so privileged and you're just bitching and moaning and everything kind of feels like a surfacey. It doesn't actually feel like it's ingrained in anything deeper. It feels like a sketch instead of like a real piece of art. True. I mean, about the age thing, I hear what you're saying. Like, if you're a teenager, you could watch this movie and you'd be watching the Thora character and the Mina character and the Ricky character and being like, I side with you. Parents are the worst. Parents are so lame. They're really pathetic and embarrassing. At a time where, like, people, I think, are kind of scared of teenagers. I mean, Columbine has just happened. Like, Kevin Spacey is going around this publicity tour being like, people ask, how does a thing like Columbine happen? This movie answers that question. Teenagers are mad. The very first lines in this movie are like teenagers being mad about what they've been born into. I need a father who's a role model. Not some horny geek boy who's going to spray shorts whenever I bring a girlfriend home from school. What a lame Someone really should just put him out of his misery. Want me to kill him for you? I mean, that's such bullshit. This movie is not about 
Columbine. Like, I think this is a movie about suburban people being scared of Columbine, right? It actually speaks perfectly to why I think this movie doesn't age well at all, because it's this fear of other, right? We see that throughout the entire thing. This movie has these elements to it, very much like the film Crash, where it's like, you see what we're doing here? We're showing you what's actually going on. If you were to show this movie and go, this is Columbine, people would laugh you out of the room. But in that moment, be like, yes, right. It is about this. It's about a kid being under the 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 heel of a, a father who wants too much of him. You know, like, feels false. Well, but it feels false in a way that I think you could also say that this is a movie about people creating problems and making things worse and not appreciating the life they have and deciding they have to blow it up. Because it's not like this is a movie explaining like, oh, the Columbine kids are justified in what they do because the world is a nightmare. It's like nobody's justified in anything that they're doing. Everybody's like screwing up and making things worse for people and starting fights and destroying their life and not being fair to each other. I don't know, Amy. I'm going to disagree with you and just say that this movie is so white upper class. Hey, that wait, I, I'm not sure I agree with me. I'm just okay. I'm just I'm elaborating here. I'm have I'm, okay. I'm teasing this out. <laughs> Sorry, I will take that. But I'm going to say this movie is so upper white middle class that it actually makes you feel like, oh, it, it, it is to me the bane of of the dramedy craze that we have lived in for the last 20 plus years where people are making movies that are not a comedy and not a drama and it's just people complaining about, oh, I hate going to Erewhon. Oh, isn't my life so hard? Like, look at me. Like, oh, yes, no, I know people send me free cupcakes. Right. Like, <laughs> like there is like this energy here of money doesn't buy happiness. But the truth is, is like, I don't know if I want to hear that story from these people. Like, this is also right before 9-11 or, you know, and I think that we're in the moment where everything is good. The economy is good. We should just be enjoying life. And I think this movie does ask this question. Well, why am I not? Why am I not enjoying life? I have what people told me I would get. And it's something that we're dealing with now. It's like the idea that millennials feel like they can never achieve the American dream because it's unaffordable now. There's no places to get in. Jobs are going away. And this is a moment of saying, I do have the perfect job. I am living the American dream and I'm unhappy. So we really have both ends of the spectrum here, you know, where it's like, yeah, people are just unhappy. Right. Well, and it yeah. has nothing to do with anything else. Yeah. See, wait, now I think we're kind of finding the part that I think is interesting to talk about here. Yes. It's like there's one way of watching this movie in, you know, 25 years later and thinking like, OK, Lester has a job where he makes under sixty thousand dollars a year and yet he can afford this gigantic home somewhere in the Midwest. That is completely out of reach at that price right now for anybody making that income does not happen, cannot happen. And so there is a way of watching it through there and being like, oh, shut up. But then there's also a way of watching it and thinking maybe unhappiness is the human condition. And no matter what we have, we're going to be unhappy. And if we can see it through that lens, maybe it's more interesting as not necessarily as a movie we're supposed to agree with, but as like a lens into a type of psyche. Right. I do agree with that. And I think that, you know, the human condition is this idea that, you know, we're not always happy. Why are we not happy? There's a million reasons for it. But I think what happens in this movie is everyone is very arch. Is it a satire or is it a drama? And I would even argue that Sam Mendes has a trouble kind of figuring out what he's doing here because, you know, he begged DreamWorks to reshoot the first three days of production because he started with what he called a comedic scene. And it was totally the wrong 
place to start with this film. And I think that this movie falls into that a lot. We're playing into this leave it to beaver world. I mean, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this Pleasantville world. And in 1999, I don't know if that's what America is, this Americana that we're seeing. Maybe it is. It didn't feel like that when I lived through it. I think we're trained of as seeing Americana, right? right? Like, I think when you see America in a movie, it looks like this, whether or not that was ever true. And I guess... I think it needs to be pressed further because everyone is saying and doing things that are absolutely nuts. You know, even if it's Annette Bening going like, I love the feeling of this gun in my hand. You know, you have to hear that. There's no way you can say that line and I'm not going to play it. I got to say, Mrs. Burnham, when you first came here, I thought you would be hopeless. But you're a natural. Well, all I know is I love shooting this gun. It's big. It's goofy. It's funny. And yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. Is this movie mocking normal life? Is it like, oh, these suburban women are so mad at all of this weight that's on their shoulders that firing a gun is the only thing that makes them feel alive? Or is it honoring it the way that it, you know, sort of pretends to be at the end? Like, I'm grateful for this life. I'm grateful for every stupid moment of this life, I think is how he phrases it. And then he's like, don't worry, you're going to be grateful for your stupid life, too, because we're all going to die. And all that poetry, it's like, (laughs) oh, it's it really is like it feels like it's making a bigger thesis. And I think because it's playing like a drama, it's playing straighter than it's written, because I think if you play this arch and really commit to arch. It's fun and campy. It's like May, December in a way. I was thinking of May, December watching this too. Well, it's interesting because I think that Todd Haynes made this movie and made a better version of this movie just a couple years later. With Far From Heaven, a movie I'd love to do sometime. Yeah, Far From Heaven to me feels like what this movie is. Not to say that that movie is arch, but I feel like that's kind of encapsulating it. And I would also say that movies that are wrestling with the same thing are attacking it in a more interesting way, right? If you look at The Matrix... They put this same idea, dissatisfaction, you know, feeling like you're not a part of the world in this sci-fi package. And everyone's like, oh, my God. Right. And we understand now looking back and we've talked about this on our show. That's partly a trans story as well. You know, like feeling like you can't be who you really are. And that's what this movie is wrestling with, too. Office space. Like, why am I here? Why am I in this job? I, this is not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Fight Club. Same thing. Yes. You know, also coming on in this time, American Psycho. Richer version of Fight Club. Same thing. And American Psycho is the arch version of that story. You could play American Psycho straight and, and flatter, and I think it wouldn't be as interesting as the version that we saw, which we loved. That's true. But isn't it interesting that at this time, everybody's like, I'm depressed and unsatisfied. And then we look back at it and we're like, what is your problem, you people? I don't think it delegitimizes the unhappiness that people seem to feel at like the turn of the millennium. I just think it makes it really interesting to explore. Because, yeah, I, I was alive and I remember kind of agreeing with it. Yeah, what's the point? I don't get it. La, la, on we, on we, on we. And now I'm like, man, I wish I lived in a time where I could have ever afforded it. Yeah, house. I mean, and I think these feelings that people have, that we all have, are going to come up. You know, you could be living in a world of prosperity. You could be living in a world of despair. And you will go through versions of this, you know, this questioning of your own existence, like this existential question of, you know, am I doing the right thing? And and I, I think the core issue with this movie for me is, is Lester Burnham someone that we're supposed to relate to? 
Like, is he a likable character? And I'm not saying it in the sense of like, we need likable characters, but I'm like, this guy's an asshole. Like he's an asshole and he's also not interesting. Like, whereas like Tyler Durden is an asshole and very interesting. Yeah. Lester Burnham is like Edward Norton in Fight Club if he never meets or unleashes his inner Tyler Durden. Yes. He just keeps like sulking. spread the word when you get a fresh hot mccrispy from mcdonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag don't try to wait till you get home always respect hot chicken the mccrispy only at mcdonald's Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. hey everybody it's rob Lowe here if you haven't heard i have a podcast that's called literally with rob Lowe, and basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I think what's really interesting about this journey of his, which is like falling in love with his daughter's friend, it's so pathetic. It's sad. The way that he's like listening in like a young kid and he's reverting back to his adolescence. It's, I think, the beginning of this idea of baby men, like the men that don't want to grow up, the men that don't want to be in this world. That's what he's doing. He's like, he's not breaking out. He's not doing like Michael Douglas's falling down. He's reverting to a child or teen, which is, I think, even worse. Yeah, he's like completely regressing. I mean, his character arc here is like, I'm a man who has a wife and a job and a daughter. And by the end, he's like, I'm a man who just wants to get high and lift weights all day and call my wife, my grown wife, mom. What the hell do you think you're doing? Uh Uh-oh, mom's mad. Bench presses. I'm going to wail on my pecs, and then I'm going to do my back. I I see you're smoking pot now. I'm so glad. I think using illegal psychotropic substances is a very positive example to set for our daughter. You're one to talk, you bloodless, money-grubbing freak. He is like, Idol is a teen boy, because the teen boy is like, I can just quit my job. Who cares? Because I can just quit my job. I make tons of money selling weed. Look, I'm not paying you to do whatever it is you're doing out here. Fine. So don't pay me. Excuse me? I quit. So you don't have to pay me. Now leave me alone. Asshole. I think you just became my personal hero. And so isn't that weird that this is a movie where it's like teenagers are saying, I'm miserable. And the adults are like, oh, but I want to be a teen again. Right, because it's always going to be this moment. It's not about your surroundings, it's about you. Do you feel comfortable with who you are? You know, looking at Thor Birch's character and the West Bentley character, they are the closest to being fully realized. They know who they are. They see the world for what it is. Yes, Thor Birch wants to get breast augmentation because she's living in a world full of image, and I think that she feels like that's necessary. And West Bentley you know, I think understands how to play 
the role he's supposed to be in his house and also understands that he is building to an escape. And I know the Wes Bentley monologue of the plastic bag, it, you know, that to me is an example of this writing that's like, okay, oof. And this bag was just dancing with me. Like a little kid begging me to play with it. For 15 minutes. God bless him. He does that monologue very, very well. I actually, you know, it's funny. I did a live read of American Beauty. And it was interesting because I do think Kevin Spacey is well cast in this role. I saw Brian Cranston do it and he did it really well, I thought. It was very different. You know, uh, they originally wanted uh, Chevy Chase or Tom Hanks to play this role. You know, Brian Cranston looks like a dad. Like he kind of has that same look. I think it's, you wanted to see somebody who felt like a nerd or a stoner as a kid. Like, I don't know if you can feel that from Brian Cranston. Like you get this idea that he's a little off. I mean, obviously we've seen, we've seen a lot of stuff about Kevin Spacey. I would say if you just point him to the Christmas videos he makes as his character from House of Cards, you could be like, okay, yeah, this guy is a little weird beyond the sexual assaults that he's doing. I think that like, there's something interesting about this character that only he could kind of play. Um, I mean, he has kind of like a unformed babyishness to, like in his character. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. The way you're describing Cranston, I can picture him playing it with kind of sharper edges. You yeah, know? And a- I tried to picture even like what Chevy Chase would be like in this role. You know, I mean, the idea of them thinking of Chevy Chase, I think is fascinating because it, it kind of does speak to like, yes, I grew up thinking of Chevy Chase as my dad because of all the National Lampoon movies. And, you know, there are scenes in the National Lampoon movies where you do see the Chevy Chase have, I would say, kind of a Lester Burnham freakout, like here. Yeah. I think you're all fucked in the head. We're 10 hours from the fucking fun park and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm going to have fun and you're going to have fun. We're all going to have so much fucking fun we'll need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn spiles. You'll be whistling symphony doo out of your assholes. I mean, that is a scene where a dad is like, you guys are spoiled. We're doing the thing that I want to do, even if it means I'm regressing to my teen years. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. We're going to have a fucking good family vacation. And so I do think the casting is right. And I want to talk about Wes Bentley because I do think that they probably leaned a little bit too much into the Columbine thing for him. Because in that same live read, I saw Adam Driver play that part. And Adam Driver played that part in a way more interesting way. There was something with Wes Bentley. Like, I think there's moments where he hits it perfectly. Like when he's smoking weed with Kevin Spacey. I, I really like that scene, but he's lighting a fire on her lawn. In her he, name? Isn't that name? kind of freaky? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, is he a stalker? Is he not? They're like, his character read a lot creepier to me this time around. Yes. And it's, we have been told that the Annette Benning character, Caroline, is an absolute freak because she likes her roses and she likes her shears to match her clogs. To which I would just say, if you're buying clogs and shears at the same time, why not? What's wrong with that? Do not get why that's a sin. But like, if that is what we know about her character, the idea that somebody could burn the name Janie in her backyard and she wouldn't completely lose it and be like, you're never talking to that boy again. A little bit crazy. But I think, tell me if this is what you're getting at, because I have a theory. I think part of it is that Wes Bentley plays Ricky Fitz a little creepy. Yes. Mainly, he just, he doesn't blink. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It wasn't even just the bag scene, really, because honestly, I can kind of get behind the bag scene. 
Sure. Like, I understand it. I mean, I think I've even like admitted on this podcast that one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen was when I was driving down the one from the Bay to Los Angeles and I saw a cow standing on a hill looking at the ocean and that cow standing on a hill looking at the ocean will always be one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. A cow just recognizing that nature is gorgeous. I get teared up even thinking about that cow. So I am not going to sit here and judge when, you know, the writer Alan Ball is like, I saw that bag. Let me tell you about it. I had an encounter with a plastic bag in the wind outside the World Trade Center one day that was sort of, you know, um, it was sort of an epiphany and um, very similar to what he experienced. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would look at that and say, well, that's completely insane. And maybe it is, but um, I, I don't feel like I chose that image. I kind of feel like it chose me. I'm sure, you know, it's just a coincidence, but it, it really, there was something profound in that moment for me. And, um, and I, I've never forgotten that moment. And, um, and it, it kind of like brought me to tears. And uh, I can't, of course, I can't remember exactly what I was going through in my, in my own life at that time. I might have been one of those moments where, you know, watching a Burger King commercial would have brought yeah, me to tears. Yeah, exactly. But it was, a, it was a profound moment and I, it always stuck with me. And, um, and, and, you know, there's a, whole, there's a whole Buddhist notion of, of um, the miraculous within the mundane, and that's why I thought it was important that um, there is beauty in a piece of garbage. And I'm not even going to judge when Ball like, wins Best Screenwriter at the Oscars, and he ends his speech by thanking that bag. My uh, family, especially my mom, all the writers I have ever worked with for everything that they taught me, and finally, that plastic bag in front of the World Trade Center so many years ago for being whatever it is that inspires us to do what we do. Thank you. Because you know what? Honestly, Paul, I think that is kind of a beautiful idea that like we should look closer at the natural world and appreciate it. And there are times when like I might be in a funk, and if you just sit in your car for a second and you think, find one beautiful thing at what I'm looking at right now, you can find something. And it does make me feel better. But that said, Wes Bentley never blinking. Wes Bentley talking about how he likes to also film dead bodies and how that's super beautiful. I got that homeless woman on videotape. Why would you film that? Because it was amazing. What's amazing about it? When you see something like that, it's like God is looking right at you just for a second. Wes Bentley seeing his girlfriend's dead father with gory, goopy, gross blood everywhere and staring at him for like 30 seconds with really no blinking and his head is tilted like he's Michael Myers and then finally just saying, that is creepy. And when you read the interviews afterwards and everybody who made this film, you know, like Ball, like Sam Mendes are like, he is this movie's conscience. He is this movie's soul. Ricky Fitz is the greatest. That creeps me out. And that makes me really suspicious of this movie. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I want to go into this Alan Ball script. I like Alan Ball just fine. But I do think that this movie is set up to play directly into the hands of the Academy. It's, it is a movie about upper middle class wealth and, and, and maybe even arguably higher than middle class, you know, upper class. And and it's a movie where it's like the guy with the camera. He's able to tell us the truth. I mean, Steven Spielberg read this script on a Saturday night and came into DreamWorks on Monday morning and was like, let's make this script and not change a word. And it feels to me like, oh, this script captured something 
that Spielberg identified with. Oh, I have everything, but I still feel empty, right? And and I mean, the fact that the script started off as like, not a parody, but like an ode to Amy Fisher. Like it was originally about Amy Fisher, the Long Island Lolita who shot, you know, Joey Buttafuoco. That's how it started. And you can feel elements of all this stuff in here. I mean, even to the point that this is supposed to be a stage play. And I almost feel like it plays better as a stage play. Like it, there are things in this movie that I feel like are fighting with each other. And I feel like it's like the script is fighting with the cinematography. The direction is kind of playing against the performances. And what you get is a movie that feels good in the moment, it, but there's nothing there. It's like marshmallow fluff. Like, what is that? It's go- Yeah, oh, great. But wait, what did I just see? Like, is it marshmallows? I don't know. I don't know. It's something. It feels like it, but it, it, it's empty. Yeah, I mean, that Amy Fisherness of it all is kind of strange, right? Because I always heard that about this, and I'm t- I have a hard time seeing it. The most I can see is, like, what I remember about Amy Fisher, which is not much. I'm, like, going off of the memories of, like, it. People magazine covers at the grocery store is like I mean that happened near my house. So I'm oh. I can be I can be a good So I it's like be, a married guy who slept with a teenager, right? And then she yeah. and then he dies? Is no. That what this is? Uh no. Oh. So um Joey Buttafuoco said that he was seduced by Amy Fisher, and then Amy Fisher uh went to his house and shot his wife in the face. Oh, the wife got shot. The wife okay. got shot. The wife. I mean, got and that's shot. a very quick version of events, you know. And again, I will look at everything through the eyes of the '90s or the '80s and say that you know we may have gotten that interpretation wrong. The fact that we call, and I just did it a second ago, the Long Island Lolita. It's like, oh yes, we're blaming the girl. Yes, she did shoot this woman in the face, but it's like, oh, but if she didn't fall in love with Joey, you know, and Joey Buttafuoco, by the way, now runs an ice cream truck. I, uh, he came to his sets multiple oh times. My, yeah, he got like a Carvel ice cream truck. Good Lord. I mean, I like Carvel. I like Fudgy the way. I love I like me too. Fudge. But, but that's here too. I mean, that's like here really deliberately. Like Lester Burnham is an anagram for the phrase Humbert learns, you know, yes. Humbert, Humbert, like the, the protagonist quote, a thousand quotes around that of like Lolita. Definitely Alan Ball's working from this Lolita template too and kind of like injecting it in here. I mean, the character of of Lolita, her proper name, her actual name, the name that she goes by, by the way, shout out to Jamie Loftus's amazing Lolita podcast, one of the greatest podcasts ever. You know, that character, her actual name that she likes is Dolores Hayes. And what do we have in here? We have like the character that he's in love with is Angela Hayes, spelled differently, but it's that same kind of sound. I don't know if he's playing with Lolita ideas or just being like, hey, this is Lolita, but now. And by the way, can we just call out some other crazy shit about this movie? You're talking about how Wes Bentley, his character is the emotional core, the conscience of the movie. The Lolita subplot and how this was treated is nuts. The kiss between Kevin Spacey and Mina Suvari was up for best kiss at the MTV Movie Awards. I mean, that's nuts. Like, it would have been nominated, except I think the studio itself was like, that's wrong. That's not exactly the full context of how we want this movie to be seen. And so they were like, you cannot use any of our footage to put in your show. And so then MTV revoked the nomination. It just goes to show you, like, we're off. We're off here. Like, you know. But if what we're trying to do on this podcast is understand why this movie hit the culture that way in a year where it would have been nominated for Best Kiss, I think that is so interesting to see, like, how nobody is really flagging this as much as they would today. You're like, Ebert. We love Roger Ebert. I love Roger Ebert. Hero of mine. 
In his review of American Beauty, this is what he writes. Is it wrong for a man in his 40s to lust after a teenage girl? Any honest man understands what a complicated question this is. Wrong morally, certainly, and legally. But as every woman knows, men are born with wiring that goes directly from their eyes to their genitals, bypassing the higher centers of thought. They can disprove of their thoughts, but they cannot stop themselves from having them. American beauty is about yearning after youth, respect, power, and of course, beauty. And the moment a man stops dreaming is the moment he petrifies inside and starts writing snarfy letters disapproving of paragraphs like the one above. Uh, That's beautiful because he put his own, like he said, you can't attack this because I've already said that you're going to attack it. I do agree with it. There's an inherent misogyny to this movie. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we are supposed to be on the side of Lester Burnham, who doesn't show us anything we like. He's an asshole to people. He's got a crush on a 15-year-old girl. You know, and it's at the end of the day, we're supposed to be like, well, he's not that bad because when she said no, he backed off and he's actually nice to her. It's like, well, uh, okay, that's the baseline. The way that it hit, right, the culture, is I felt like people just identified with Lester. And they're like, yeah, Lester's yes. great. But I weirdly don't think that Alan Ball identified with Lester for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, Alan Ball himself, he is not attracted to women. So I don't think he's writing this as like his own fantasies on paper. I think like in his interviews, he is like, no, Lester's kind of a creep. You know, I mean, his name, Lester, it's basically like Mo Lester Burnham, you know? Oh, wow. But yeah. I think it's fascinating in the culture at the time, we didn't see the criticism that I think even Ball saw. I think there are parts of this movie, like you said, where you are aware that Lester is kind of pathetic. You know, like when he's just nervously stuttering the first time he talks to Angela here. This is my friend, Angela Hayes. Okay. Good to meet you. You were also good tonight. Very precise. Thanks. Nice to meet you, Angela. Honey. I am so proud of you. You know, I watched you very closely. You didn't screw up once. <laughs> okay, uh, we have to go. So what are you girls doing now? Dad, we're going out for pizza. Oh, really? Do you need a ride? We can give you a ride. I have a car. You want to come with us? Thanks, but I have a car. Well, you have a car. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. Because Janie's thinking about getting a car, too, soon, aren't you? Honey? Dad, Mom's waiting for you. I mean, that is absolutely dorky and pathetic. He's playing it like a teenage boy. But also we are indoctrinated to like root for nervous teenage boys. So we're still rooting for him, even though he's a loser. And that's also part of what's going on. In a way, I think this movie is easier to understand now because we don't want to identify with Kevin Spacey's character at all. This is also a time where we have movies like the professional and beautiful girls. Like we and and you know, going back to even Lolita, like we are in a culture where Many a man has fallen for a 13 and 14 year old girl in our popular films. I just feel like the way that it was handled here feels to me the same way that they handle this military man. And and like you said, Alan Ball is gay, right? So he does something I think really interesting, which is creates this gay couple uh, with Scott Bakula is one of the members of and they're boring. The two gyms. The two gyms, they're boring. And I think Alan Ball loved that idea. Like, I want to create a non-flamboyant representation of a gay couple. Like, they look just as boring as you would see, uh, you know, a middle American man and woman, right? Like, they dress the same. They just, they don't have any pop or pizzazz. And they're kind. They show up at, you know, Chris Cooper's house when he just moves in, being like, we bought you this 
really right. beautiful pasta basket. Colonel Frank Fitz, U.S. Marine Corps. That's nice to meet you. This is my partner, Jim Berkeley, but people call me JB. Yeah, let's cut to the chase, okay? What are you guys selling? <laughs> Nothing. We just wanted to say hi to our new neighbors. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you said your partner, so uh, what's your business? Well, he is a tax attorney. And he's an anesthesiologist. But then you put that next to Chris Cooper's character. I feel like this is such a weird choice. It's like, all right, so Chris Cooper, he hates gays. Okay, we get it. Military people, you know, like we're putting this idea. It's like, it's not completely novel. But then what's the twist? He's actually gay. Oh, explosion. Like, what? like, what is that? Why are we doing that now? Like, what's this? Yeah, I mean, I think like to ball that part was kind of personal because basically this is his dad you know ball himself like he grew up in a really homophobic family in georgia he gave interviews at the time being like i was told i was a freak i was told i was evil i was told i was horrible my dad was really mean to me and then after his dad dies his mom pulls him aside and she's not trying to be nice about it she's like you know i blame your dad for what happened to you as in i think your dad was gay and that's why you're gay and so he thought that idea of like oh, wow, was my dad also miserable just because he never got to live the life that would have made him happy? That kind of broke his heart. And I think he tried to put that in here. But it is weird. Like, I remember being really, really bothered by that. And then when I watched the scene here really closely, when he, like, kisses or attempts to kiss Kevin Spacey and Kevin Spacey, you know, was like, what? There's a couple things going on. Like, one, the buildup to it is weirdly comic. You can imagine from the Chris Cooper point of view, that he thinks that Kevin Spacey is gay and sleeping with a lot of the men in the neighborhood. I mean, there's all these double entendres, like, in the way he's talking here. Your wife is with another man, and you don't care? Nope. Our marriage is just for show. A commercial for how normal we are when we're anything but... You are shaking. We really ought to get you out of these clothes. But beyond that, what I find really kind of moving is when you look at Chris Cooper's eyes, what you can kind of see in there, and maybe this is Chris Cooper going even beyond the script, is a man who's never, ever, 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 ever in his life felt safe being open about what he wants and how he feels. And finally thinking, this guy's given me like a thousand clues. I've seen him blowing my son through a window, I believe. He's telling me flat out that this marriage he's in is just a sham. He's asking me if I want to take my clothes off. I have maybe finally found somebody I can be vulnerable and open with. And then when he's rejected, that genuinely actually hurts. I mean, am I going too far on this? Like trying to empathize with this character? Like, I do believe the performances are good. But I also believe that it's badly directed because I think that the tone is off. I think that Chris Cooper plays the character the way Sam Mendes saw it exceptionally well. But at the same time, I think the writing of this character is 
so arch. And I think what this movie says at the end of the day is like, you know, that perfect middle America that you think about? It's not that perfect. In this house, a woman's cheating on her husband and the man wants to fuck his daughter's friend. And meanwhile, the next door neighbor is gay. And the other next door neighbor is a military man who hates gays. But actually, he's also gay. And his son is violent, but he isn't violent. But we think he is. And the hot girl she actually doesn't like sex and she's really a virgin. It's like, ta-da, it's like a twist, twist. It just feels like it's too happy with itself. And I, I just find all these other movies that we've referenced to do the same thing way more interestingly. And whether that's heightening it by putting it in a genre or playing it up for comedy, we're getting this. But instead, I think it becomes like this moralistic lesson. And I think that's where this movie fails. And if it played just for comedy, as the writing is, it would have been way more effective. If I'm putting words in your mouth, stop me. You don't trust this film to teach you this lesson. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what I wrestle with because at the same time, I'm saying all of this on this rewatch, I enjoyed it. I put it on last night and I was like, you know what? I'll just watch the first 45 minutes and I'll go to bed and finish it in the morning. And I couldn't put it down. I was like, oh, this is great. The music is great. The music's amazing. I love the music when Mina Severi is kind of like fucking with him a little bit. And she's like, ooh, a root beer. Ooh, is that root beer? I mean, it has a sound to me that like reminded me actually a lot of White Lotus. You know how White Lotus sometimes goes into kind of like a, a rhythmic, almost like origin of music sound where you can kind of picture like drum circles and like this is human nature coming out i feel like there's a touch of that here in like the thomas newman score you know it it, it reminds me actually a little bit of the true romance score as well which if you remember it uh it just has a similarity like a, a little bit of a tonal similarity what i find interesting about this movie especially after watching election was how they played the Mina Suvari character. You know, I think this is a trope, and, and this movie is full of tropes, and it's hard now to look at this movie from 1999 and say, oh, did this start the tropes, or are these tropes that people attacked? You know, it's like, oh, the girl who is actually assumed to be promiscuous is actually a virgin, right? But they play her to be very much coming on to Lester Burnham. And she wants that attention. And obviously at the end, when she's told that she's boring, that's really what pushes her over the edge. I don't think she has any any want to sleep with him until that happens to feel special. But even that, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, and in election, I think it was cleaner. This movie, it's like, I don't get her character point of view to be like, let's flirt with your dad. Like, he's not cool. He's kind of a nerd. Maybe she's doing that because... She is an experience and she feels safe with him, but it just doesn't pass the smell test to me because it's way more interesting for him to fantasize about her getting a root beer and seeing that. But it's way less interesting to me to see her kind of feeding into it as well, because I'm like, what does a 15 year old girl see in this guy? You know, when I put this movie back on, I had a thought right at the beginning with her character where I thought, wow, they really just wrote her so awful and so artificial and so mean and such like the encapsulation of like every girl you hated in high school who was like horrible to you in a way where maybe the script is letting you know it's okay if this creep is lusting after her because she's just the worst. So who cares? But I will say by the end of this rewatch, for the first time, I felt like I really understood and 
cared about her character. It empathized with her for the very first time. Because honestly, I haven't seen this movie, I think definitely since like the Me Too movement began. And it became so interesting to me watching it as the story of a young girl who's been like indoctrinated in a bunch of like pre-Me Too living. Because that's kind of what she's saying here. You know, she's like, I'm a product of my environment. Yeah, I want to get ahead. So if this like molester photographer wants me to have sex with him, that's just how the world works. I'm serious. He just pulled down his pants and yanked it out. You know, like, say hello to Mr. Happy. Gross. It wasn't gross. It was kind of cool. So did you do it with him? Of course I did. He's a really well-known photographer. He shoots for Elle on, like, a regular basis. It would have been so majorly stupid of me to turn him down. You are a total prostitute. Hey, that's how things really are. You just don't know because you're this pampered little suburban chick. So are you. You've only been in Seventeen once, and you look fat, so stop acting like you're goddamn Chrissy Turlington. Because, yeah, when I watched this movie for the first time, I definitely identified with the other girls who are like, you're a horrible person. What are you doing? But now I feel like I have more sympathy for her because she is like, this is what I'm being told works. This is what I'm supposed to do, right? And so then she goes through this whole journey of being like, All I've ever been told is that my worth to people is based in how I look. I'm an incredibly insecure person worried I'm not going to make it. So if my friend's dad likes me, I'm just going to get that dopamine hit. You know, I'm just going to be like, tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm okay. I need to see my effect on this person. And then also, I think part of what's turning me around on her is like I read Mina Suvari's memoir, you know, which came out a few years ago, uh, The Great Peace. And she really actually like deepened my respect for this character because I thought I was going to read that book and Mina was going to be like, I felt really unsafe on that set. I didn't like being on that set. That was a weird role. I feel strange about it now. But really what she wrote was playing this character made me feel so, 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 so seen as a young actress because everyone around me was telling me that my only value was my looks and that I had to keep up this tough front and I had this awful abusive boyfriend at the time. And it was really on this set being able to play a character who was allowed to cry made her feel safe for the first time in like her young adult actress career. And so now I'm, I'm suddenly like justice for Angela in a way that I've never felt before. Well, you know, it's interesting because Mina Suvari and I are roughly the same age. So when I saw this movie the first time, I was like attracted to Mina Suvari. Like we're, you know, like in that zone, right? Like we're like, oh, you know, I see her, but I also felt like she felt young even in this movie. And then rewatching it, when I looked at it now, as somebody in my 40s, which is what Kevin Spacey's character is, I'm like, she looks like a child. Like, it actually made me feel grossed out by this. And I, I think, you know, again, I grew up at a time where I'm like watching Timothy Hutton talk to Natalie Portman and Beautiful Girls. And I'm like, oh, wow, but Natalie Portman's about my age. So I'm looking at these men going, like, well, I'm Timothy Hutton. No, I am the same age as Natalie Portman. And I'm looking, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's like, but now as an adult, I'm like, this is creeping me the fuck out. And and, and listening to that Roger Ebert line, I'm like, I'm like, oh, no, no. As a 40-year-old person, I'm looking at this and I'm like, get me the fuck away. And I think that, it's really interesting that that wasn't the takeaway from this movie. Like, again, we talked about the MTV kiss. We talked about this thing, like the cover, the poster cover, supposedly like her belly and her hands. It's like, we really are putting this child front and center in this like weird love story. And it's not as deep and it's not as poetic as Lolita. And it doesn't have any consequence of that. Right. Kind of like how even the 90s Lolita is like, oh, well... Humbert's a relatable guy. 
<laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Because and, 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 uh, yeah. that's kind of where this lands. And, and and it does walk on this fine line of like, because she pushes it a little bit, the movie frames her as being, well, well she wants it too. Well, she's she's leading him on. And it really does say, well, it's, it's partly her fault. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't think that that should have been the message here. Well, you know, what you're saying actually helps me understand the photographer scene a little bit better. We learned at the end, like, the photographer scene never happened. You know, she did not have sex with a photographer. She is a virgin. Right. And so then you're like, why is she lying about being forced to, like, have sex with a photographer, right? Because isn't that, like, a next level of what's going on? You know, why is she talking like this to her best friend? I don't think we can be friends anymore. You're way too uptight about sex. Just don't fuck my dad, all right? Please? Why not? Because you're right, she's not even just being like open or willing to have sex. She's lying about all the sex that she hasn't had because she really deeply believes that it's what people want to hear or it's what she should be saying. Like, right. I'm trying to really even understand it. But that is kind of like the trope, right? The slutty girl is actually not that slutty. She's actually the virgin. And I think that this movie is trying to like have all of its cake. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, and Thora Birch is so caught up in wanting to have bigger breasts that, you know, she's only saving up money for breast augmentation. Like, It's like everyone's so caught up in who they are supposed to be. And the weird thing about the boob job, too, is like, you know, when she tells you about it, she's kind of laughing in a way where you're like, oh, maybe she's being sarcastic. Now. Yes. I'll cost you. Well, I've been babysitting since I was about 10. I've got almost $3,000. Of course, I was saving it up for a boob job, but. (laughs) But then also it means like before she even had boobs, she was saving up. It wasn't like she was flat chested at the age of 16 that she is now and she was saving it just in case she wanted to make a decision. That's when she started saving. It's like, I guess you're supposed to think, wow, when she was 12, she thought. Maybe I won't have big enough boobs, which says something even, I think, darker about the culture that at 12, she's like, I better start saving now just in case. And that to me seems like the point of view of an older man that is writing this movie. And it's the way I feel about Euphoria, where I'm like, who is telling this story? Is this really something that anyone identifies with? Or is this just the version of what we think kids are and we feel fulfilled by it? Because I've talked to a lot of people who are in the age group of Euphoria, and they're like, yeah, no, that show is crazy. It's not our lives at all. I mean, I will say, like, in that first real monologue that we get from Angela, where she's like, I love it when guys masturbate to me. You know, that one. I'm used to guys drilling over me. It started when I was about 12. I go to dinner with my parents. Every Thursday night, Red Lobster. <laughs> Every guy there would stare at me when I walked in. And I knew what they were thinking. Just like I knew guys at school thought about me when they jerked off. Vomit? No, I liked it. And I still like it. If people I don't even know look at me and want to fuck me, it means I really have a shot at being a model. Which is great. Because there's nothing worse in life than being ordinary. Definitely when I heard that one, I was like, I don't feel like a woman wrote that unless it's a woman writing something about a girl who's just a really extreme example of being brainwashed by society. I mean, also, we should say in the original version of this script, 
Angela and Lester have sex. Like, Baldwell's like, what? yeah, they're totally doing it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was definitely in his first draft. He got talked out of it, but it was because he was like, I just did so many years of the Sybil Shepherd show. I was like, if you don't let me do some stuff that, like, thumbs it to Puritans, I'm going to lose my mind. He's like, if you were European, you wouldn't care if these guys had sex. And now he's like, that was a totally wrong choice. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, the original ending also had them going to trial. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, boy. Oh. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Like, on this rewatch, I thought to myself, I respect Angela a little bit more. I get Angela a little bit more. I want to take care of Angela a little bit more than I did uh, back in 1999. Thora Birch, I would ride or die with that character. I get her. She's, like, relatably mean. And when she's mad at her parents, it's because they are legitimately acting completely off the rails. The character that I really struggled with, though, this time was the way that the Annette Benning character has been written. Both of Thora Birch's parents suck. The difference is that, you know, Kevin Spacey can work out and maybe he has a big dick, but there's just absolutely nothing good about Annette Benning's character ever. She's just a nightmare. Like, there's no real hope of her redemption in this, I think. Although in the scenes where she's like cheating on Kevin Spacey with the real estate king, I am genuinely happy for her because I kind of feel like they get each other. She totally understands the real estate king. Both of them feel like, yeah, what's wrong with trying to work hard and succeed and put money on the table? And yeah, image is important. And at least she has somebody she can talk to. And I'm kind of happy for her and Peter Gallagher, honestly. Yeah, I I, I like Annette Benning in this. I think that she is definitely positioned as a shrew. But she also is the only person who gives a shit about her job, about what's going on. And I think that she's fallen out of love with her husband because he has given up. Before we start this movie, he's given up. She, you know, is trying to sell these shitty houses. I think I didn't realize that, by the way, too, the first time I saw it. Like, that house she's trying to sell is shitty. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved watching it because I'm like, oh, I see what she's up against. She doesn't have the perfect houses. And she's giving it her all. She's trying so hard to succeed. And I think that she sees success as a way to get out of her life. But she's surrounded by people who don't care. She's on an island in this house. So you're right. Like when she's with Peter Gallagher, it's, it is kind of good. They're together. It's somebody who like excites her. She's, she's being embraced in the way or she's being seen the right way. You know, in the house, like Kevin Spacey just wants to fuck her at one point And he's like upset because she gets like, oh, don't spill it on the couch. But too little too late in that moment. I don't know. I don't know. It, yeah, no, yeah. I'm like completely on her side in that couch scene 
Because yeah. basically he's finally like, hey, do you want to hook up? And she's not saying no. She's yeah. just saying, would you mind putting down your beer? And honestly, if you're Kevin Spacey in that scene, just put down your beer. That's all she's asking. He could have put down his beer and then they could have romped and it would have been totally fine. But he had to be like, no, me having this teenage tantrum about you not telling me to put down my beer. It's a $4,000 sofa. He could just put down his beer. What's his problem? She's not even saying don't do me on the couch. She's just saying don't spill anything on the couch. And I think that she probably gets the most short shrift in this film. But this is why I have a problem with this movie. Like, who is the main character? There's something where everybody gets a little bit of story time, but I I feel like she's the least developed. Her twist is nothing. Like, her twist is, you remember that woman that we thought is a bitch? Guess what? She's a bitch. Yeah. And you know what? She might raise her daughter to be a bitch because her daughter's going to dare say, hey, dad, stop lusting after my friend. And he'll say, Janie, you're going to grow up to be a bitch. Like, yeah. What? The narrative of Ball writing this screenplay is that this was his first feature thing. And he was like, I'm writing this because I'm miserable, because I'm in Hollywood and I've been spending all of the, my time writing on sitcoms. Right. And he's not just writing on like any sitcom, you know, he's writing on like sitcoms that are driven by female comedians. He starts off his like sitcom writing career doing Grace Under Fire. Grace is the other woman. He went back to his wife. Maybe you ought to try it. Grace Under Fire, right after Home Improvement, Wednesday on ABC. And then he moves from Grace Under Fire to Sybil, you know, the Sybil Shepherd um, sitcom. Yep. And all of his quotes at this time about like leaving sitcoms behind and writing the script are basically like, I was working with women who were such nightmares. These two women running their shows kept telling me what to do. They'd show up and be like, I got a haircut, so you have to write a show about my haircut. And he hated it. And he was so mean about it. I mean, he was giving interviews at the time saying that he had come from, quote, the gulag of Sybil and Brett Butler. And he just flat out is like, there's a lot of Sybil and Carolyn. So this idea of like women controlling his career, his environment, having too much control. He said literally that they were creating for him like what he felt like was a volatile environment. He puts that in this movie. And I think he admits openly that he's angry when he writes this the first time. You know, and a lot of the things he was putting in here are his anger coming out, being like, I'm so mad at this. and I'm going to take it out this way. And like, he's like mad because like in the Sybil Shepherd sitcom, every week something gets resolved and everybody learns something and Sybil tells people what, how to live better and everybody hugs. And that's why he's like, when he does this one, you know what? The kids aren't going to get resolved. The kids are going to go to jail for Lester's murder, even though they didn't do it because I want to do something so deeply cynical because I'm tired of writing this kind of formula. And you know what? You just articulated another element of what I don't like about this. It is a movie that is written with no sympathy or love for its characters. We have seen plenty of anti-heroes. We have seen plenty of bad characters. But this is written with a disdain for its characters. And I think because of that disdain, you get this movie that wants it every which way, which is everyone's a piece of shit, but also everyone's conflict. It, it, there's no sympathy here. I think that Alan Ball goes on to create shows and other pieces of work where he really embraces his characters Six and loves under, his, And I think yes. he really gets to love doing yeah that for sure. But I feel like here he's writing about people he doesn't want to be around. And as a result, we're forced to watch and spend time with these people that he doesn't want to be around. And I think that what it attracts is this Hollywood mentality, and I keep on going back to this, of 
the Academy Award voters going like, yes, I'm surrounded by fucking people I hate too. Cynical work to me is often the hardest to wrestle with. Tell me a story, have awful characters, do terrible things. But when it's just from the point of view of I'm smarter than these people and I'm writing them basically to serve me instead of them serving themselves, you feel it. And by saying what you just said, contextualizes this entire movie for me and goes, oh, I I see what happened here. This is Lester Burnham's letter to that efficiency expert who comes in. My job consists of basically masking my contempt for the assholes in charge and at least once a day retiring to the men's room so I can jerk off while I fantasize about a life that doesn't so closely resemble hell. Well, you obviously have no interest in saving yourself. Brad, for 14 years, I've been a whore for the advertising industry. The only way I could save myself now is if I start firebombing. You know, I think you're exactly right. And it's like Mendes, who's like, I'm cutting this thing about the kids being convicted of Lester's murder unfairly because it's just too dark. It's just too mean and making it more of a movie trying to be about love. And it makes me think like, if Annette Benning didn't play this character with, I think, so much empathy, you would see the seams, right? You would see it kind of fall apart. But Annette Benning, like apparently in rehearsals, Annette Benning would show up and Sam Mendes would do kind of theater practice with them. And he'd be like, where are you just coming from? And people would be like, oh, what does he mean? And Annette Benning would immediately be like, I've just come from the dry cleaners and they messed up my shirt. And you don't understand how hard it is to find a good dry cleaner. And you can't trust anybody nowadays. And she got this woman. And I think she really cared about her. And so... My reticence about liking this character in the first place, I can only imagine how much worse it would be if it wasn't Annette Benning playing this and like doing a real serious Oscar run. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember leaving this movie loving Annette Benning. Like she feels to me real, even though we're talking about it right now. And I'm going, is that misogyny that I'm looking at her and going, she's real? Or is that good acting? Because she's actually making herself a three-dimensional character. Like she's actually expanding upon the lines and we're seeing her as something more realized. I mean, the way that she has her breakdowns, like her back up against that, you know, those Venetian blinds and just crying like that. Like it's, it's a manic performance. And in a movie where everyone's trapped, you feel her being trapped so much more than anyone else. I think that's true. I mean, imagine the hell of being married to Lester Burnham. I mean, my God, going home every day to Lester Burnham, who is a completely contemptuous of you and B is just smoking pot all day and listening to metal and lifting weights and acting like you're the problem for worrying about how to pay the mortgage. Maybe part of why I am inclined to like root for her, or maybe root for her is too strong, but sympathize with her is this idea of like an image conscious person worried about the outside looks, worried about, you know, presenting the right face to the world. That's just become so much more common with like Instagram influencers And so, honestly, I'm like, yeah, it's not healthy, but it's not evil. And I would probably match my gardening shears to my clogs, too. And you know what? When he calls her a phony for listening to, I don't know, Perry Cuomo or something, when she's alone in the car and she's got that Perry Cuomo on, she's having a great time. She likes her Perry Cuomo. She's not being phony. She legitimately listens to it when she wants to hear music in her car when she's alone. Let's just ask this question because it's an Academy Award episode. American Beauty wins Best Picture against Cider House Rules, The Green Mile, The Insider, and The Sixth Sense. Did they get it right? I mean, I'm going to boldly say no, 
Um, I think The Sixth Sense would have been a great Best Picture winner. It would have been really out of the box. And I think The Insider, to me, is another great movie. I mean, Russell Crowe lost the Best Actor award to Kevin Spacey. I think that that performance is unbelievable. And Sean Penn also is up against Kevin Spacey in The Sweet Lowdown. I think that this movie captured an ennui that was happening pre-9-11 when times are good and people wanted to say, but I feel bad. And I think it really spoke to a lot of people and maybe, you know, people may not be falling in love with a teenager or they may not hate their husband, but it was something in the air of, is this all there is? Am I really happy? I've done all the things I'm supposed to do and I'm not happy. We have this in 1999 and now we're in 2024. And even though the times have changed and things have morphed, the feeling is still the same. Like people are longing for the American dream, but just go back to 1999 going, well, if you had the American dream, would you feel like this? Like, where is the middle ground? You know, I don't disagree with you at all. And I think it's like really telling that when the AFI put together their last list, they put on the sixth sense and they did not put on American beauty. You felt like a little bit of course correction. But, you know, I've enjoyed watching this because I feel like understanding this time period just becomes, I think, more and more important to me, like historically, culturally, like anthropologically. And honestly, I think it's easy now to be like, we've changed. We're not any different now. But the way you were just describing how we, you know, act and feel and try to make everything about us and try to figure out why we're still sad. For some reason, the first thing in my head was like, when I read a recipe for something that I'm curious about and everybody in the comments of this recipe is like, well, I can't have this because I'm gluten intolerant and I can't have this because I don't eat onions and I can't have this because I'm a vegetarian. And I just want to say, then don't read this recipe. It doesn't matter. And I say that as a person who doesn't eat gluten that much. I get it. There's a way I think of trying to figure out how to make ourselves the tragic hero of a story. That is exactly what Kevin Spacey is doing. And it's not a flattering part of our personality, but it's like absolutely who we are. And maybe it's because I'm I'm tired of that in our culture right now that I find myself identifying as a little strong, but maybe like respecting, understanding, relating something like that of Annette Benning sitting in the car, listening to self-help tapes that are like, I refuse to be a victim. I refuse to be a victim. And giving her daughter the advice of you can never depend on anybody in this world. You can only depend on yourself. And that is also terrifying. And you can see how she was shaped by it. And I feel like it's a thought that all I'm trying to do lately is undo it in my head and learn that it's okay to depend on other people. But you can see how it shapes her in this, you know, and it makes me feel really empathetic for her character, for being somebody who's like, I'm just going to get this done. I'm just going to get this done. And, you know, pleasure's great and I'll grab it when I can. But at the end of the day, somebody has to pay the mortgage. And for that reason, I think this conversation has been a thorny one to break down because it's not as simple as Forrest Gump, right? It's a little bit more complex. It captures a moment in Amber. I think the buzz around this movie, the way it was reacted to, is important to look at. I'm glad we have this movie. I don't think it's worthy of being, you know, a movie that we look to as being A, a great movie, or B, saying something uh, about our society. But I think it captures a whiny voice that we all have really well. It's an angry, why not me? Let me blow it all up. Why should I bother doing anything voice? It's, It's the worst voice that we have. So that's why, you know, I watch this movie. I enjoy it. 
I hate it. I like the performances. And I wonder if you were to take this script and stage it big and make it super campy, which is what I think the movie is trying to do, if it becomes way better. Because when we talk about all these other movies, Fight Club, Matrix, American Psycho, Office Space, they all did this better. And those movies actually have stayed culturally relevant for longer. But, you know, I think that because of the cultural phenomenon of it, it's fascinating to know that that was the one that we all deemed as being the one in that moment. Yeah. And you know what? I don't want to let us undo that. I want to remember that we did that because I think that says something important about where we were as a culture. A hundred percent. I think that the Academy Awards is a very interesting litmus test of what we are thinking. It's not what the best movie is, but it's like, what are we identifying with as a culture? And again, is it a culture or is it just, you know, an Academy Award voting board? I will say, though, that this is bigger than the Academy Awards because I think that this movie did reach out. Like we talked about MTV and things like that. that This is a bigger deal than this Academy Awards. This is a movie that I think isn't one of those indie darlings. I think everyone probably saw this instead of seeing The Hurricane or The Insider. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that got made the hell fun of on, like, The Family Guy. Look, it's dancing with me. It's like there's this incredibly benevolent force that wants me to know there's no reason to be afraid. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world it makes my heart burst. It's just some trash blowing in the wind. Do you have any idea how complicated your circulatory system is? You know what? I think you could even say Katy Perry, fan of this movie. Do you ever feel like a plastic bag drifting through the wind, wanting to start again? Do you ever feel... All right, there you go. I mean, can I just give you the number, Amy? A $15 million movie that domestically made $130 million. That is completely crazy. And you know what? If that happened again right now with a movie like this, I wouldn't hate it. I love it when an indie movie like really catches the imagination. And I, I just think that that's fundamentally important, even if we find it embarrassing today. I agree. Like, let's live in our embarrassment. We all have it and we've all lived through it and it, it makes us better. It makes us a little bit you know, smarter. And I think this the anger towards this movie is a little too base. I do think it, it's worthy of a conversation like this. Because it's hard to parse what's not good about it. It makes me feel a certain way, but I'm like, it's not devoid. I love Sam Mendes. I think people give great performances. Alan Ball is somebody that, you know, went on and and created many interesting things. I think it's worthy of this conversation. This is not a flop. This is not a bomb. You know, it's, it's too easy to say it sucks. And I think it does suck, but I also think it's more interesting (laughs) than just sucking. I completely agree with you, man. And the last question I want to ask you, Paul, is would you rather watch this movie for two hours and two minutes or would you rather watch a plastic bag blowing in the wind? Well, who's narrating it? (laughs) And, you know, Amy, all this talk about Sixth Sense really made me think about what that movie got right. And that's a movie that also I think, you know, the M. Night effect is kind of in the mix. And I loved our conversation about that film and the impact it had. Another big movie of that year. Take a listen to what we talked about there. M. Night stripped away everything horror-ish, except those couple things. And when they stand out, they stand out. But he said specifically, thinking of a hallway scene, he said, 
in horror movies, they always have this blue light in these scary hallway scenes. Like, nobody's hallway is a blue light hallway. No right. one's like, oh, my hallway's all blue and creepy and weird. He said he wanted to shoot a hallway with normal ha- hallway lighting so that when you home- went home to your hallway, it looked like your hallway, and it was even scarier. So it's all about removing it. I mean, even yeah. with the ghosts, I would I would imagine that somebody had the brilliant idea when they were, if they were writing a script like this, what if one of the ghosts was George Washington? You right, know? right. And and he was like, no, it's like a normal thing. There's not a normal. It's it's all here. It doesn't need to be kicked up another notch. Well, I will say that that's again why you make a scene like Haley Joel Osment's character going to pee in the middle of the night. Like you feel the terror. This was a lot of fun, different than what I expected it to be. But I'm so glad we got to break down this movie. Next week we are going to a Best Picture nom that. I think definitely was in the cultural zeitgeist for a very long time, and maybe not so much anymore. It's a movie called The Sting. Robert Redford, Paul Newman. I mean, this is a movie that, you know, is definitely in film history, but I don't know if people reference it that much. I think that Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid gets a lot more love, but this is a movie that I remember really, really loving. So you can check out uh, The Sting, Best Picture winner, wherever you get your streaming films, or you could go to your local library, things like Hoopla and Canopy to get it for free. And I'm really looking forward to watching that because I have not watched it since I was a kid in my room in sixth grade. I remember exactly where I was when I saw that last time. And I'm very, very excited to revisit it and see if it holds up. Wow. I have never seen The Sting. Wow. I only think of The Sting as the album whose soundtrack is at every single like used dollar record store thing ever of all time. You are so right. That album cover is amazing. <laughs> Speaking of a great design, we have an amazing design, The Art of Schwing. We made a new t-shirt. We don't make many, but we made a new one. It is uh, a Wayne's World inspired t-shirt uh, that is available now at tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. You can check it out. I love that shirt. You can get it as a sticker, on a mug, on a hoodie, whatever you want. Tpublic is, has done a great job with that. Uh, you can still pre-order my book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma, wherever you get your books. It's now available in the UK and Canada, and I really appreciate all the people who have done it. And if you do it, I'll let you know that I will be uh, signing uh, special postcards for everybody who uh, registers at my website with their receipt uh, for the first 3,000 and give you exclusive access to a lot of extra content around the book. So that's what I got going on. Amy, anything for you? No, but I'm definitely going to be trying to get my signature. I want oh, my get, postcard. I will get you that. You will get that. Uh, and uh, and I just wanted to say also thank you for the amazing birthday cookies. Josh and I, Aww. our producer Josh, uh, we share a birthday and you made us some of the most delicious cookies ever. It not only blew my my mind, but it blew my kids' minds. And my kids don't like to go outside of the box on the cookies, but everybody... Dark chocolate marshmallows. They were so, so good. good. I, made a, I made a proud Instagram story. Yeah, I got to put mine up on Instagram. I took pictures of them. Uh, I got to get them up. Yeah. You guys are warming my heart. I feel so touched. I need to make more. I need to you make do. more. Those are Sell, Start selling them. Start selling them. <laughs> a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, 
See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. Chocolate treats mix into dark chocolate ice cream. The Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection ice cream, extraordinary dairy. Go spread the word when you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag. Don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.